Hey, my dear patrons and listeners. I'd like to get more feedback on what listeners think of the podcast, and if you're willing to record an endorsement or comment for me to insert in the show. If you heard the last episode, you heard one of these endorsements. Basically, I'd like about a 10-second clip of, you're listening to the SRB podcast, I listen because blah 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 blah, whatever reason why you listen. You can feel free to send me other comments or questions, and I'll put those in the show as well. And if you send me a question, I'll try to record an answer. Feel free to record your endorsements, greetings, comments, and questions on your phone. You can send all comments and upload audio at srbpodcast.org slash contact. Once again, that's srbpodcast.org slash contact for all your comments, questions, and greetings. I hope to hear from you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. In the early 1930s, the Soviet state launched an all-out assault on the countryside to collectivize agriculture. It was a violent, chaotic, tragic, and transformative period for rural society. We now know a lot about collectivization, but we know little about the collective farm system that existed until 1991. What was a collective farm, and how did it really work? What was life like for collective farmers? How did the system change over time? It's strange that we know so little about such a large segment of the Soviet population. So, to tackle a subject like the collective farm, I decided to do something different. Rather than interviewing one guest, I've moderated a discussion between three scholars who've looked at Soviet rural society from a variety of perspectives to give us some sense of the collective farm after collectivization. Aaron Hale Dorel is an independent scholar of modern Russia. He's the author of Corn Crusade, Khrushchev's Farming Revolution in the Post-Stalin Soviet Union, published by Oxford University Press. Christy Ironside is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University, specializing in the political, economic, and social history of modern Russia. Her forthcoming book is tentatively titled A Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union, 1945-1964. And finally, Samantha Lom is an assistant professor in the Department of Foreign Languages at Vyatka State University in Kirov, Russia. She's the author of Stalin's Constitution, Soviet Participatory Politics 
and the discussion of the 1936 draft constitution published by Rutledge. Here's Aaron, Christie, and Samantha on the Soviet collective farm. So um, I thought we'd start, we're going to talk about the, the collective farm um, and, and what what that was in, in the Soviet Union. But before we start, I just want to have you all introduce yourself. So uh, Sam? Hi, my name's Dr. Samantha Lom. I'm currently a, an assistant professor at Vyatka State University. And my current projects, uh, one of them looks at life on collective farms in the 1930s in the Kirov region. And the other one looks at district level administration in rural areas in the Kirov region. So they often overlap. Um, but they were big enough that they needed to be two separate projects. So that's what I'm doing currently. Hi, I'm Christy Ironside. I'm assistant professor of Russian history at McGill University. Um, and uh, my forthcoming book is about the ruble and money more broadly and uh, the promise of prosperity after the Second World War in the Soviet Union. And otherwise, I'm starting a new project that looks at the Soviet Union's relationship to international copyright. Um, my name is Aaron Hildorl. Um, I'm a uh... An independent scholar, I guess is the phrase. Um, my book uh, came out at the end of last year uh, and is on uh, Khrushchev's corn campaign and, and, and more deeply kind of delves into um, everything from sort of top level policy to getting down to the, the nitty gritty details as much as possible on the collective farm. And what is your book called? Oh, uh, it is called uh, Corn Crusade. Uh, Khrushchev's uh, farming revolution in the post-Stalin Soviet Union. It's interesting, and, and I think this w we'll get into this more deeply in the sense that you know rural society in the Soviet Union is, especially after collectivization, has been a topic that hasn't received as much attention as one would think it would, um, and and the collective farm system in particular after collectivization. Uh, and, and, you know, for listeners who want us to talk about collectivization, we, we're not going to. I, I've done programming on that. I think it's important to talk about what happens after. So, but to start, I think, you know, let's, I, I want each of you to tell me what is the collective farm? So it's a long sort of uh, pregnant pause there. Um, I don't know that I can, I, I can give a complete answer. I think that's more of a collective thing, but one thing that does come to mind is uh, I think it's important to stake out that there's sort of the the nominal notion of like what a collective farm in in that like legally it is a collectively owned enterprise um, that belongs to the members and then the the sort of actual functioning of it which is much more subject to the to the the vagaries of state policy of pressure from uh, you know, party and state uh, bureaucracies and that kind of thing. Well, my question was, do you want me to say what they think a collective farm should be or what it actually is? Because those are not the same things. Well, I think I think we would probably be more interested in, in what it actually is. I mean, you can say what they think it is, but I think the more important description is what it is. Well, Theoretically, what it was supposed to be was usually an artel. They really discouraged the commune where everything was collected. And so according to the Marvel Charter of the artel, all of the means of production, the equipment, the horses should be collectively owned. There should be maybe a collective specialized animal farm, but people got to keep household items, household livestock, um, 
and they worked together in the fields for the collective good. What it actually was in many ways was people continuing on individually farming, calling it a collective farm, or some sort of manner of chaos in which people embezzled stuff, got drunk, stole stuff. Um, in many cases, it was absolutely dysfunctional. And certainly what I see is the continuation of a lot of independent farming practices on what should be collective land and property. So, so Sam, it, so this isn't just on on their own household private plots. This is on the actual. Oh, no, no. I mean, there are collective farms that routinely give either individual smallholders or other peasants collective farm land to grow grain crops or flax crops on or even lease out the land to either other collective farms, independent smallholders, or other people. Mm -hmm. Christy, you wanted to jump in? The one thing I wanted to add to that is just that in principle, the collective farm was supposed to be entered into voluntarily. Uh, This was supposed to be, you see these great propaganda posters from the period of collectivization where it's like, sign up for the collective farm, and they're talking about, you know, all the reasons that people might not want to do that, such as, you know, religion or local elders, things like this. But in practice, the thing that held together a lot of collective farms was coercion, whether that was economic coercion or violence or things like this, it was it was a coercive instrument that was supposed to allow the state to gain greater control over the food supply. The other thing I would add before we if, before we move on is is that this changes quite a lot over time. That um, I think there's a, a common conception that the collective farm is the collective farm, a, a fairly static kind of entity. But the fact is that you know every decade it looks a little different. In some decades it changes quite radically. Um, and so when we talk about the collective farm, we're talking about um, something that needs to be put in its particular context. Well, honestly, even collective farms within the same region, within different districts, or sometimes even neighbors look incredibly different. One can be very successful. The other one can be garbage. So, Sam, I want to I actually return to this issue that you point you actually noted, and that is it seems that, you know, on for the lack of a better term, on paper, you have this collective labor ownership, you know, access to resources situation. But in some cases, in reality, you seem to have a, a, a labor market and and some sense of, you know, property and property relations functioning. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that more? And and also, if, if Aaron and Christy, if you also see similar things in the post-war period. Well, I mean, the 1935 model charter actually guarantees that you can have a household economy. It's also guaranteed in the 1936 Constitution that you can have a cow and a bunch of smaller livestock and your garden plot. So there is a constitutionally guaranteed right to private property built into the collective farm system, and they exploit the crap out of it. Um, A lot of people up and through 1939, when my research stops, still have two, sometimes even three cows. A lot of them spend most of their effort working on their private plots. I've got some, for example, where one brigadier has like 16 head of livestock and the dairy farm on the collective farm has like 30. So he has half as much livestock as the entire collective farm. And this was fairly common. It results in the livestock on the collective farms being neglected. A lot of them die. Sometimes they are sold for slaughter to uh, fill meat campaigns, which frustrates the state because they're giving out pedigreed livestock, trying to build these collective herds. And peasants are much more interested in their private holdings. So there's there's always this tension. 
And at least in the 1930s, the private ownings are legally protected, even if it annoys the state. I'm not entirely sure why they're there, but it was Stalin who left them in. So you would have to ask him. Are you talking about the private plots that the peasants get to keep? Yeah, that plus, plus private livestock holding, which is you know effectively wealth in a rural society. Because my understanding with the private plots is that it was in part an effort that it came under a slightly different law um, from 1932. And it had to do with um, when they kind of ease back on collectivization, um, they allow people to keep those private plots um, and bring things to market. But then they tax them very heavily on it because I've, I've come across this from the angle of the agricultural tax, which is the primary mechanism through which they try to constrain the amount of effort peasants put into their private plots. See, in 1938 it. is when I come across it, when they're trying to actually limit the size of the usadba, because a lot of people you're supposed to have between, I think it's 2.5 and 0.5 hectares. And a lot of people have between 0.75 and one hectare garden plots, and they're trying to enforce this limit because what they have is people who are not working on the collective farm and who are spending all of their time and making all of their money and actually fairly good money on their private garden plots. Um, in Kirov region, they're relatively unsuccessful at stopping this practice. I don't know about elsewhere, um, but yeah, in Kirov, it appears to persist with great tenacity. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron, in your in your introduction, you give this amazing statistic about the percentage of actual food production is coming from private plots as opposed to, say, the collective farm itself and to actually feed the population of the Soviet Union. So can, can you talk a bit about that and what the post-war situation looks like? Yeah, I think I think that's um, sort of True. What Samantha is saying is true more broadly, and and something that persists. You know, my impression is that um, one of the ways in which they manage to feed the country through the war is essentially by turning a blind eye to the fact that um, peasants are expanding their 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 private plots, personal plots, kind of willy nilly, um, and um, basically just trying to kind of make the most of that situation. And then there there are attempts to then crack, crack down on it uh, again in the post-war sort of retrenchment, um, but it's a problem that persists. You know, you see evidence of it um, in the 50s and 60s, although I think generally the attempts to crack down on it tend to be kind of local um, and specific rather than, you know, I, I'm not thinking of any particular sort of broad countrywide campaign to do it, even though it's something that's always kind of there uh, on the agenda. Um, you know, and again, those the numbers are always, you know, anytime you're dealing with Soviet statistics, but I think especially with agricultural statistics, you kind of have to, to to be a little skeptical, but certainly a large proportion. And I think it's important to say a disproportionate um, part of the overall food output comes from these uh, personal plots. They're very intensively farmed in a way that, that the collective farm fields are not, in part because it would be impossible to intensively farm that kind of um area just from a labor perspective um but the, pe the peasants are able the collective farmers who are doing this are able to get a pretty astounding amount of food out of a relatively small amount of of area and that is true um for quite some time and 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 i, I think as we get a little deeper and talk a little bit more about the reforms that khrushchev um tries to implement in the late 50s and early 60s there 
again, roundabout ways to try to incentivize putting more effort and more labor into the collective farm fields um, at the expense of the pri- personal plot, but rather than being sort of punitive toward the personal, it's incentivizing the collective, which is a, a slightly different tack than you see, say, in, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, uh, Christy, you know, in terms of like, uh, taxes and prices. Do, does the state? How does the state actually uh, collect taxes from peasants from their private plots? And 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 what about prices? Like, how do do they have any influence over, say, the kolkhoz market prices? No. So kolkhoz market prices are free market prices. They have to do with supply and demand. Um, and, and this is actually a point of great contention for Soviet authorities because uh, that was not the case for retail prices. So retail prices in the Soviet Union, um, it, it depends on what time we're talking about, because uh, in the interwar period, you have rationing from nineteen. 19- from the late 1920s into the mid-1930s. It's abolished in 1935. It's brought back during the Second World War. And under rationing, the way it worked in the Soviet Union was that you had subsidized prices and your ration tickets entitled you to buy a certain amount of something at those low prices. Uh, but of course, there was never enough to buy at those prices. So then that sent people to the collective farm markets where the prices were unregulated. Um, and peasants were very intimately aware of the extent to which the government was not able to provision workers. So of course, Many economic historians looking at, at market prices have said that they, they reflect the repressed inflation within the Soviet economy. They show exactly how much you know, shortages are affecting the food supply because peasants are the ones producing that food. So their market prices reflect more what they, they, they they're in, in dialogue with the state's prices and they reflect the actual state of supply in the economy. Um, when it comes to taxes, uh, so one of the, the the things that's kind of hard to explain about the, the agricultural tax is that it functions very differently than other taxes in the Soviet Union. So uh, the agricultural tax, it goes through a couple of different iterations, and it has to do with the different regulations that, that Sam mentioned about, you know, how big the plots can be and what you can have on them. But it goes back and forth between being a tax on income and being a tax on property. And usually what you see happen what you see happening is it cycles through when they feel like the peasants are making too much money from private produce, they move in the direction of the income tax. When they're not and they're trying to incentivize peasants to produce more, it moves more in the direction of a property tax. Peasants want it to be more like a property tax because they can cram ever more livestock, ever more stuff onto those private plots and then expand how much money they can make off of it. But for the most part in the interwar period and into the through the Second World War and up until it's abolished in 1953, for the most part what it is is you pay taxes on norms of income. So if you have a certain number of apple trees on your private plot, you pay based upon what they calculate an apple tree should generate income. <laughs> they don't, it's not based upon what you actually earn. So a lot of peasants are in arrears on these taxes all the time because they say, no, actually, I only, you know, only one of my trees bore fruit this year, or, you know, this was a bad year. We had, you know, a drought or something like this. Um, and part of it is that the agricultural tax is not really about generating a steady and reliable flow of revenue from the perspective of the state. I mean, they're always, the, the economists I look at are always complaining that this makes them no money. But it is this disciplinary mechanism vis-a-vis right. the peasantry to, to disincentivize producing too much on the private plots because then you're going to lose a lot of that income to taxes. Um, when it comes to collecting the taxes, they uh, they have to go and pay it in person because they, of course, don't get paid wages, right? So they can't have it deducted from their wages the way that workers do. Um, and, uh, and so this is another reason why they're in arrears because the tax is expected in cash. 
but peasants are often not paid in cash. <laughs> they're certainly not paid in cash from the collective farm. So they're paying it from the money that they make from the market sales. My experience is that the taxes are actually collected by the uh, um, and that a lot of times they actually send agents out, particularly people in arrears that they don't like, because this is never, this is very, very unfairly enforced, very, very much. People that they have problems with, they will send someone out to take an inventory of their household goods and they will have a sheriff sale. And in a couple of my districts, this is how they try and get rid of the pain in the ass. Yadina Lichniki, the individual smallholders, is jack up the arrears and sell all of their stuff because they think they're troublemakers. Is it illegal? Yes. Does he get some of them in really big trouble in 1937 because it is actually illegal? Yes, it does. But they do it anyway. And it seems that the tax collection is in many ways sort of a punitive thing that the local officials use to get rid of people they don't like. Hey, Christy, I want to I just ask quickly about the, the, the prices in the Kohl's market versus the, the state prices. Um, how, much, I, how much more expensive are, say, produce on the, you know, the Kohl's market compared to, say, in a state store? It's it's a really good question. I get asked this question all the time, and I never have a good answer for it because it really, really depends. I mean, I would say in general, um, they are significantly higher. Uh, I, don't, I'm, I hesitate to say like they're 25% higher sometimes like because it really depends because during the Second World War, they are astronomically higher. I mean, they, they multiply exponentially, but the other truth is that a lot of the time, People are not paying these prices always entirely in money during the Second World War. They're often bartering for things. There's a whole sort of trade in, you know, any kind of household goods that, that urban citizens have to get food. They bring them to the collective farm markets. Um, so it, the prices are they're hard to kind of neatly calculate, but they are they are typically higher. And um, and the state is always very worried about this because this this in addition to you know demonstrating the fact that there are all these shortages within the planned economy, it also uh, makes it very hard for them to figure out how much money to print and how much money is circulating out there in the countryside. Right? Uh, the, by the end of the Second World War, they calculate that the countryside has twice the amount of cash in it than the cities do, which shows you the extent to which the prices have gone up. But again, people are not always paying in cash. So it's actually really hard to calculate. Um, but in but in general, they're, they're very high. I can say that by, by the mid to late 1950s, people are still, urban workers are still buying let's say about 25 to 30% of their, uh, their food purchases in the collective farm markets. Yeah. Um, I was just going to follow up. I, I had done a little bit of digging in the archives, looking at some of the prices and things. And I think absolutely echoing what Christy said, but also worth pointing out that um, this is not necessarily the, the goods that are available in the collective farm market are often things that are just impossible to get anywhere else. So it's not like, oh, I could pay this in the state store or, you know, many times more in the collective farm market. It's if I want this thing, I have to go get it in the collective farm market. Um, and, I, you know, even in the post-war period, it's often a matter of quality also. You know, you, you can go buy something in the state store, but, you know, you run the risk of it being bordering on spoiled or maybe more than bordering or, you know, whatever else. Whereas if you want things that are fresh and, and you know, actually appetizing, you, you probably have to go spring for it in the collective farm market. So uh, let, let's step step back for a, a bit, uh, a bit. You know, you, I think we've, we've 
kind of given a picture of, you know, what this system kind of looks like. I mean, we'll get into it more, but um, what, why do you think, I mean, first off, like I said, I started with, there isn't a lot of scholarship on rural society, particularly after collectivization. Um, and, and in some cases, it's kind of a mystery when I, when I actually, when I teach Russian history or Soviet history to even describe what this place is after, you know, collectivization, but also especially after the war, because it, it transforms a lot. Um, so why, why is understanding the collective farm system important in your view for the history of the Soviet system? I'll take that one, maybe. <laughs> um, maybe I, I, I prepared a statement. I don't know. <laughs> well, not really a prepared statement. I wrote myself some notes. Um, uh, well, one of the things that, uh, that I think really, well, let me restart that. Why I think it's important is because the Soviet Union was supposed to be building this modern economy that was dominated by heavy industry. But in fact, agriculture was key to all of these plans. Uh, just to put it very bluntly, the Soviet government needed peasants to produce the food that fed the workers who worked in the factories. And so, you know, in some ways, uh, we need to know what's going on in the countryside, we, you know, because the Soviet government is itself very, very concerned with this. They understand intimately that the success of many of their other plans uh, will founder without food to feed people. Um, and that's especially the case for the stuff that I look on after the Second World War when they're making these very big sweeping claims about the population's prosperity. Uh, claims about monetary prosperity mean very little when you can't buy food with the money that you are paid. Uh, so I think that agriculture is really important to understanding the, the Soviet system. The collective farm system is very important to understanding the overall Soviet system because in the long term, they get locked into this system of small-scale, inefficient agriculture, which is not what they wanted. And it long-term contributes to the inefficiency and the chronic shortages that help to bring the whole thing down. Well, I, I go into this completely differently. I am not an economic person. I, my phone tells me how much money I spend. My, someone else does my taxes. I'm a terrible numbers person. So I'm not really interested in the numbers thing. I mean, it's good that somebody is, but it's just not going to be me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm interested in, because when I'm looking at my research, it pulls back again this notion that this was a top-down, command-style, totalitarian system. And you see this a lot even with studies of collectivization, that it was repressive, that people were forced in. Some places maybe, but certainly not Kirov. Kirov, people just say, okay, that's nice and continue doing what they were doing beforehand, which I find fascinating under Stalin in the mid-1930s. People are like, yep, nope, not doing that. Thanks. Bye. So wait, so with the levels of repression that we see in some cases in collectivization aren't the same and aren't similar in Kirov? Oh, God, no. Not at all. There's probably some reasons for that. We are... Northern, relatively unimportant. We have a crappy climate. There was no serfdom, but strong zemstvos and a long tradition of athod. So Kirov peasants have always had sort of an independent tradition. Plus, we have a craptacular infrastructure even now. So getting to the place to even enforce the rule is often very, very difficult. Yeah, I think that's that's worth. This is going to look very different in some of the regions that seem so important in Ukraine and, and and sort of the Black Earth region and this kind of stuff where it was like, you know, we have to get this under control or we won't be able to feed the country. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think I really have anything to add, but rather to echo both of those points, basically. 
I mean, Aaron, you know, you you wrote an entire book on <laughs> on, on on agriculture. So I would think that you know, and and I I have to say, like reading you know reading your introduction, um, you you're not kind, <laughs> uh, you know, in a very academic way to to the way the collective farm system has been treated. Um, so you know what you know what is your kind of intervention and and why you devoted a whole book especially to corn which you know as you point out is as usually kind of the laughing stock of like khrushchev but uh you know you take it seriously yeah i think i think it calls out to be taken seriously because it is this kind of window into what the literature has long assumed about the way the system works that is that whoever at the top makes a decision and it it happens, right? You know, that there's this top-down command mechanism that transmits orders, you know, from 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 top to bottom, and that's the way things were. Um, and you don't have to dig very far to realize that that's not at all <laughs> how, how anything works. You know, everyone uh, responded in, in various ways, depending on, you know, local... Uh, environmental, political contexts, you know, individual personalities, individual communities. Um, you know, there's so there's so much diversity in this that, that to say, oh, you know, Khrushchev told them all to plant corn and they did and it failed is such a, you know, it's such a crude version of something that is, you know, I, I don't think I've even begun to scratch the surface of of what could be, what what you could do. I think basically you could go to any region like Samantha Zane and, and, and dig a little deeper and find a different story. Um, you know, I did this in a couple of regions and found, you know, these really poignant moments showing the, the real limits to uh, centralized power. Um, and yet, and I think the other thing that I would say, I'm, I'm again, in an academic sort of way, not very kind to is, a sense that you know agriculture and food and the collective farm and all these things have been really you know sort of limited to to a relative sideshow. Um, these things are not important. They're not sexy, um, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, and yet, as Christy says, you can't feed this massive industrialized country without a food supply. And this is a thing that they struggle with mightily. Um, you know, even when they're on the right track in the post-war period, or a, a better track perhaps not that maybe uh, it's not really a matter of right or wrong um you know it, it is ultimately one of the things that contributes to bringing the whole thing down and um and yet we you you, you can go in and read very serious literature that just sort of assumes uh, a lot of things that are true based on for example the experience of collectivization and basically assumes that that is what happens everywhere and for the next step, you know, 60 odd years or whatever, you know, um, it's ahistorical. And what I think your book does that is really important, Aaron, is that you focus a lot on the scientific aspects and sort of the developmental aspects of food production, how that they were trying to actually improve that this, you know, collectivization is actually supposed to be an agricultural revolution. Is it always? No, not always, but they do try. And I think that your your focus on the exchange between the U.S. and Russia and sort of the focus on the scientific aspect of agricultural crop growing is something you don't see in most other literature on the subject either. And I think it's important. Yeah, and I think that's in part because um, 
you know, th this isn't sort of built into the collectivization project, but it is essentially dormant for 20 years because they're so concerned with just extracting and controlling and, you know, it's this kind of crisis mode and it's only in the 50s that they look around and think, okay, this crisis mode can't continue. We have to start investing. We have to start actually applying some of these kind of basic principles of, you know, agronomy and, and science and technology and engineering um, in ways that were latent in the system, but never really you know, in any sort of meaningful way or on any meaningful scale applied. So, you know, the, the thing too is that um, it, the rural society from, I mean, we could start from 1905 in some respects, but so Russian and then Soviet rural society has it experienced a series of major shocks, right? Um, you know, the peasant, the peasant uprisings in, in 1905 to 1907, and then of course, World War I, uh, then of course, then the revolution and civil war, famine, and then collect, you know, so a period in the 20s of, of relative, you know, recovery, and then collectivization, and, and then famine and terror, and then the war. Um, so, you know, what, what do those and, and and this is a question for all of you because I think it, it you know it's something that the Soviet Union has to deal with and and the system has to deal with and overcome or at least try to overcome. How do these sh like shocks to rule society kind of shape the way it it looks and the problems that they're trying to deal with? Let's start with you, Sam, since you're in the 30s. Well, first of all, the shocks are very different region to region. I'm going to say I do the Kirov region, and the things that hit Kirov are not the same things that hit. Ukraine, the CBR, the Northern Caucasus, the areas that tend to get a lot of press. It just it just isn't. Um, for example, collectivization, you know, 1929 to 1932 tends to be the beginning of the collectivization campaigns in Ukraine, CBR. In Kirov, our levels of collectivization are ridiculous. Um, just an example, as of March 1st, 1930, the the former Vyatka Gubierna at this point were actually part of Gorky Cry, which makes life super fun. I had between 49 to 54% of collectivization, but following Dizzy with success, this dropped to point or 3.5% to 21%. So it just, it comes apart. So by 1930, there's like no collectivization again. And it takes them years to get back. Um, for example, by October 1st, 1932, Sanchursky district is only 27.6% collectivized. By 1933, in October, it is 44% collectivized, finally getting back to the pre-dizzy with success levels. So we really don't have full-scale collectivization until about the mid-1930s. And even then, there are massive variations between districts. Uh, in 1936, there's about a 98% collectivization rate throughout the entire region. Um, but there are regions like Karakulinsky District, which is only 68% collectivized in 1936. So there is massive variation in this. And this really affects what happens in each district. And it's often due to the fact that it's very difficult to get people out due to poor infrastructure. The people in Sanchursky district absolutely admit at the Rayon level that they collectivize the farms closest to Sanchursk, which is the Rayon capital, because they can get there. Some of these other places say they haven't seen someone from the Rai Kolm or Rai Ispokolm in one to two years because it is just 
so hard to get out there. The other big problem in Kirov is that this was actually the battlefront for the Civil War. And what that means is when the white troops left, they left caches of guns behind. And in some places like Zuzinski district, you actually have armed rebellion murdering people up until about 1934 who go out and try and collectivize, which is a disincentive to go. I have seen people straight up refuse to go and serve in the villages. They got kicked out of the party, but they refused to go following the murder of another communist. And I don't really blame them. So, you know, this, these are serious issues, and this is nothing, again, like uh, Ukraine or the CBR. And a lot of these collective farms in Kiev are very small, between 25 and 35 households, usually. Um, and again, this varies massively region to region. In 1936, uh, Kaisky District has about an average of 77 households on a collective farm. Mareshinsky has 18 households per collective farm. So massive, massive differences. And some of these collective farms, even neighbors are incredibly different. Um, you know, some of them are very, very successful. They have, all, each household has a cow, one or two heifers, lots of chickens. They have a club, they have nurseries, they have agricultural machines, they have newspapers, cafeterias, a radio set. And then you have other places where they can't even get glass for, glass for the cattle barn Every, all of their animals are in knee-deep muck or standing out in the open, and the collective farm chairman has drunk all of the collective money. So, I mean, there's just this, this huge difference. Um, and so this goes on, plus, at least in the Kirov region, you get hit twice with famine. They get hit in 1933 to 1934, and 1936 to 1937, and this tanks uh, people's well-being. It gets rid of a lot of livestock because people kill what they can't carry through the winter to feed their families. And they're doing things like feeding the roofs of buildings to animals to try and get them through. And in particular, it is the collective farm herds that get it. And pigs in particular, because it's harder to carry pigs through winter, I guess. But you have a lot of loss of animals. Interestingly enough about this, though, is that collective farmers are always the majority livestock holder in the Kirov region in the 1930s. Always. Um, when you start getting full-scale collectivization, the number of collective farm livestock on specialized farms is actually quite small. It is the holdings of the collective farmers, their personal holdings that are actually quite massive, between 50 to 80% of certain types of livestock, sheep and goats tend to be the ones that rage up to 80%. But they keep this really strong household economy going, even through these problems. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of problems and a lot of these shocks do things like decrease the amount of livestock, they decrease grain surplus. But interestingly enough, in the Kira region, at least in 34 and 36, the state actually does send them aid. They write to Moscow and they get aid actually shipped in from Ukraine in 36. Uh, they bring them fodder. They bring them high caloric uh, cattle cake and stuff for their animals. They ship bread. The problem, of course, is Soviet bureaucracy. A lot of this shit ends up sitting in the railroad station for a very long time. And then when it gets to the collective farm, often the collective farm chairman gives it to his friends and family as opposed to the people who are starving. 
So you, I don't know that the problem is so much the shocks as the fact that the system inherently does not function well and that it's sort of a hodgepodge cobbled together bit of attempts at reform uh, and old peasant traditions such as nepotism, individual farming, and those sorts of things. So I don't know that I really answered your question. Yeah, that's what you gave me gave a lot of material to, to think about. That's for sure. Uh, anyone else? Um, I would say that the Second World War is a huge shock for the countryside in the Soviet Union, if only because, of course, 75 percent of the Red Army are conscripts who you know, have been peasants 10 minutes ago. And one of the, the big things that I see is that after the war, a lot of those people, you know, if they don't die, they, they simply do not return. And so the countryside is left disproportionately female, especially in the western parts of the country. Um, and so uh, this really does have a profound effect on the collective farm's ability to continue to do its work because a lot of the people who live in many of these villages are older women, um, entirely female households. They have a hard time kind of continuing to have families and continuing to do the work. Um, So there's a very big shock there. and of course, the other thing is that after the Second World War, there's a, a, a rather huge crisis of underinvestment in the countryside in the late Stalin period. Um, there's a lot of resentment toward collective farmers that I see in my sources um, because collective farmers are presumed to have become millionaires after, you know, during the war because they made all this money off of, off of selling things at inflated market prices. And so after the 1947 currency reform, a lot of that's been wiped out. And in fact, the 1947 currency reform Form, very deliberately targets collective farmers in the countryside and, and speculators, market elements within the Soviet economy. Uh, so they lose, you know, nine tenths of the money that they made during the war. <laughs> of course, there are ways to get around it, right? Because they're they're converting cash at the rate of ten to one, old money for new. Uh, money that's left in the bank it gets a better exchange rate. Um, and there are all kinds of ways to manipulate, you know, splitting your money up into different accounts, putting it under different names. But these are largely not avenues that are open to collective farmers to preserve their wealth. So the 1947 currency reforms a huge shock to the countryside. They lose a lot of any acquired wealth that they made during the Second World War. Um, and again, there's all this resentment that's directed toward them. Stalin puts the taxes up again, in spite of the fact that we have a famine after the Second World War in 46 through 48. And uh, and then in spite of this is continuing to export grain. So there, I, I think that I would say that the Second World War is a rather large shock. And then the, the attempts to rebuild and to reform after the Second World War to get over the wartime so-called deviations. From my understanding that uh, collective farmers were also, unlike people in the cities in terms of reconstruction, collective farms were basically on their own in terms of like reconstructing housing and things like this. Was that the case? As far as I know, yes. Um, so they do, there are ways that you can get loans you can, to, to rebuild housing. There's a changed law in 1948 about um, the ability to own homes. And so um, people are able to rebuild, but the resources are definitely not there. Um, and on top of it, a lot of the ways that they are trying to overcome the war's damage for the urban population, uh, again, they kind of don't apply in the countryside. So uh, one of the things I talk about in my book is these these price reductions that they have every year where they're, you know, slashing the prices of goods by 30 to 40%, things like this every year. Um, If you're a peasant, this does not necessarily improve your living standards, because of course, the 
rural cooperatives don't have any of those things to buy um, and you're and you're not earning money wages from the collective farm and so like the the sort of net gain in terms of real wages is very limited for the collective farmers um, I mean well into the 1950s there are places where they're they're not selling things entirely for cash um, by the late 1950s even you have cases where they're demanding payment partially in eggs or in other goods uh, and a lot of collective farmers are saying like why can't we just use our money like why can't we be integrated into the money economy. But there's always this, this lingering perception that if they integrate peasants and integrate collective farmers more fully into the money economy, then those petit bourgeois mentalities are going to take over and they're going to you know, undermine the whole thing. So they always kind of keep them on the fringes of the money economy. And so some of the ways that they try to rebuild for the urban population, they simply just, they, they, they cannot have the same impact upon the rural population. I would I would echo that that each of those sort of catastrophic events from you know all the way back to World War One and, and everything, you know, in addition to the kind of personal and human costs of those that you know both Samantha and Christy have talked about. There's also just a, a physical or capital loss involved, right? Every time you know when when the Germans come through during World War Two, you know they leave behind thousands and thousands and thousands of farms that are devastated. They buildings are destroyed. You know, livestock are lost, tractors and other kinds of machinery, what little there was at the end of the 30s um, is destroyed. And it takes them, you know, many years to, to, to you know, get back to even those ina- inadequate levels. So it's, um, you know, it's not as if this is a, a, a healthy economy they're trying to, to reform. It's one that has been beaten and battered again and again and again, both for external and sort of internal reasons. I can actually give you uh, an example of a report that I that I found in the archives about the losses to one particular rural region, if it's at all interesting to you. And this is from the Central Black Earth region from Voronezh. So of uh, this is a report from just after the Second World War. So of its 3,248 collective farms that existed prior to the war, 2,228 were burned to the ground by the Nazis. Of its 6,570 people, 36.3% were left by 1943 as a result of residents being sent to Ukraine for forced labor, um, especially its younger population. This is a policy that really affected young men in particular. 70 stables, 36 cow sheds, 130 granaries, and 66 pigsties were destroyed, along with 1,489 bulls, 1,305 cows, 1,152 pigs, 112 sheep, 5,860 chickens, and 2,198 beehives. All that was left at the end of the Second World War was 20 horses, 36 oxen, and 6 cows. So this gives you an extent, uh, it gives you a really good picture of the extent to which uh, many collective farms were just destroyed by the end of the Second World War. Um, The other thing is that, of course, what wasn't destroyed by the Nazis was evacuated out east, right? They were actually evacuating cows, and a lot of them did not survive evacuation because the conditions for moving them across the country were not excellent either. So, you know, there wasn't anything to get back at the end of the Second World War, and they're in many cases just sort of starting from scratch. Yeah, Aaron, talk about this because you 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 devote you know a lot of attention to these the, the attempt to reform the collective farm system system under Khrushchev, and also you know you put it in the context of um, you know the the at least in the Western world the turn towards industrial farming. So talk about uh, uh, these attempts to to create an industrial farm system in the Soviet Union that's comparable to attempts in in other parts of the of the world. 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the the sort of main points of the book, and and it it is essentially that 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 there is a, an attempt, you know, that actually dates back to the 1920s uh, to adopt uh, some of these industrial methods that are that are very quickly after they're being developed, mostly in the U.S. Um, they actually, at the end of the 20s, hire a bunch of these, you know, engineers and and um, personnel from these um, early industrial farms that are designed to grow uh, wheat on sort of a massive scale in like Montana and the Dakotas. Um, and they hire them to go set up these farms that are, you know, the size of a small state basically <laughs> in, in the North Caucasus and, and these regions where they're, they're sparsely settled, but they're, you know, fairly similar to the great North, kind of the Northern Great Plains. Um, and basically, what I'm kind of suggesting is that, um, you know, this, this, this ideal, this industrial ideal as, as, as it's been called is there, it's inherent in, in the Soviet system. These are sovkhozes, but there are elements of it that cross over into the kolkhoz, but they're so limited and so kind of stunted by all the effects of collectivization. And then the war that, that it's really only into the fifties that they return to this idea. And in the meantime, you know, um, this has been spreading all over the world and, you know, Western Europe and in the post-war period, um, farmers are embracing this kind of stuff. It, it's expanding, um, in the U S. Um, so that, you know, the, this, the, the United States, uh, kind of has taken this and, and, turned it into a kind of all-encompassing system, whereas in the Soviet Union, it's limited to this handful of kind of, you know, they're not demonstration farms because they are massive, but they are of a fairly limited application, right? None of this stuff that is being used there, for example, is applied in Vyatka, for example. Um, and so it's up to Khrushchev, you know, his, I guess one of the points that I make is that no matter who had had sort of seized the initiative after Stalin to set agricultural policy, they were going to pursue some kind of industrial strategy, industrial agriculture strategy. It's Khrushchev that gives it his own sort of personal twist, which includes this kind of mania for corn. Um, but even, you know, Malenkov is going to pursue a, an investment strategy, an industrial agriculture strategy, simply because the collective farms have been so starved of investment um, and this is the struggle that Khrushchev kind of sets in on, on is to, to sort of put in a course correction so that the bureaucracy will be prepared to, rather than seeing the collective farms as something to extract from constantly food um, and, and other produce, that, that actually the collective farms need to be able to, to retain enough of what they're, the wealth that they're creating to be able to in, invest in themselves in ways that simply hadn't been possible under Stalin. Um, and he doesn't entirely succeed, but this is, this is the idea. Um, and it represents a real um, uh, fundamental change in the way that the collective forms are conceived. Again, in principle, in reality, in practice, it's far more messy, <laughs> of course, but this is the idea. My name is Eric Boyle. I live in Vienna, Virginia, and I've been a longtime listener of the SRB podcast and a Patreon supporter for the last year or so. I really enjoy this podcast because it combats the cartoonish portrayal of Russia and Eurasia, 
in the news, and I really appreciate the depth of analysis and the passion that each of the guests bring to their fields. Uh, I know that it's a labor of love to put this together, and I really appreciate it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Spasiba Bolshoya. Christy, where does the where does this idea of uh, prosperity and a kind of a new social contract or an extension of the social contract after the war fit in in, in rural areas? Yeah. Um, so it's as I said just a second ago, it's uh, it's really primarily oriented at the urban uh, at the urban populace in the late Stalin period, but it starts to change when we get to the Khrushchev period, as Aaron said. So one of the things that Khrushchev tries to do is extend some of the benefits of the so-called post-war prosperity that you know, the government's been talking about for some time now, um, which is really in itself an extension of an earlier discourse from the mid-1930s um, after they abolished rationing, when they're supposedly moving toward a new politics of stability. Uh, so Khrushchev, when he comes along, he wants to extend these things to the urban population population. So one of the things that he does that affects the living standards of collective farms, at least from the perspective of central authorities, uh, is that they increase the procurement prices that they pay to collective farmers for their deliveries to the state. Um, and this allows the collective farms in turn to start paying more money to their members because they have this very interesting and intricate way of compensating members for their work, which is that uh, you don't get paid wages. You, you get paid wages if you work on a state farm. But in a collective farm, you get what's known as labor day. Um, and everyone's expected to put in a certain number of labor days, even adolescents put in a certain number of labor days. And then at the end of the harvest, at the end of the year, when they sort of you know, pay off what the, what the farm owes and things like this, they divide up what's left over um, on the basis of how many labor days people have put in. And so most of the time, uh, prior to the... Um, Prior to 1953, when they abolished agricultural tax, and then when they start these procurement price reforms, uh, most farms were not paying out in money. They were paying out in a sort of a dividend of what was left over of the goods, which then, you know, the peasants take to the market. But with the increase in the, in the procurement prices beginning in the mid-1950s, they're able to increase the amount of cash that they pay to people. And from the government's perspective, this is, this is a sort of tentative step again toward integrating peasants into the money economy, because then they can, you know, take that money and they can buy things and improve their living standards. And it, it, it's tentative, but they do start, it does start to pay off a little bit. There are more farms that are able to pay money to their, uh, to their members, but not everyone can, of course, right? And then again, it depends, you know, the purchasing power of those wages are still, no, not wages, of, of, of your dividend uh, is still very low, Right. So, Christian, yeah, I could jump in, Aaron. I know you've written about this. <laughs> yeah, I've written about this. Well, one of the things you're you're absolutely right that it's about bringing cash uh, in and and trying to kind of integrate them into this money economy. But it's also they're desperate to try to keep people on the collective farms. Um, this is a huge wave of post-war urbanization, like you said earlier. All these soldiers that went out and fought in the in, in the in the in the war and then come home. You know, some of them don't even go home, but some of them come home and take one look around and and head for the nearest whatever they can find that's not the collective farm. And so they're desperate. They're facing a labor shortage. And so they're desperate to try to keep people from leaving, especially young people. This is, of course, a losing battle. But one of the ways that they see to try to do this is by raising wages, by giving people access to um, to, to cash that they can use, then use to buy consumer goods. And, of course, the supplies are never sufficient, as, as you've said, and, and all these other things, right? It, it, it doesn't work as well as, as they envision. But this is the other... This is sort of the social side of that project. What about for social benefits, things like pensions, medical care, uh, and other things that, say, an, an urbanite might be or a worker might be entitled to as opposed to in, in the collective farms? 
Well, um, the pension reform of 1956 does not apply to collective farmers. They are excluded from the pension reform. Uh, pensions do get given to collective farmers on the basis of their military service. And so you do have a fair number of people who get them um, because they are so-called labor invalids as a result of being in, in the Red Army. Uh, but they are not extended old age pensions or uh, pensions for, again, being a so-called labor invalid. Uh, that's not the case until they're integrated into the pension system in 1964. Um, and when they do get brought in, they get brought in um, at a much more reduced rate. And it's a much more, uh, I would say that the system under which they're brought in is a little bit more austere than the one that's promised to workers. <laughs> Uh, so, because the idea, so it, it didn't mean that they did not receive pensions altogether, but in principle, the way it was supposed to work on the collective farm was that you would have a mutual aid fund that all members of the collective farm would pitch into. And then from that mutual aid fund, you would then pay pensions to older members of the, of the collective farm. But of course, by the 1950s, when they're doing this pension reform for workers, it's, it's well known that many farms simply cannot afford to do this, or they just haven't done this. And so essentially, there's no pension protection for elderly members of the collective farm. They continue to work. They don't they don't retire in the same way. Um, and this is a this is a matter of great contention amongst a lot of collective farmers after the Second World War and after uh, the 1956 reform, because this is this is portrayed to workers as one of the great accomplishments of socialism. that now Everybody is going to get a pension. But it's, of course, not true because collective farmers are not entitled to one until until the 1960s. Uh, and so especially a lot of the, the older women who are now the disproportionately largest sort of contingent of people who are living in the countryside, they, they are, are very impoverished and, and they're very unhappy about the fact that they are not getting a pension because if they were, if it was an older man, there's better chance that he might get one because of his military service. So they are, they're not equally protected by the social safety net compared to urban citizens. Uh, I was just going to pitch in and say, in addition to the pensions, right, there are sort of other benefits, things like, you know, obviously education is universal, but relatively limited in in rural areas, if you if you want a higher education, you got to leave. Um, things like healthcare, childcare are things that are provided like on an ad hoc basis by the kolkhoz. If your kolkhoz happens to be wealthy enough to be able to afford of it, afford it, but that is you know varies from certainly from region to region. Wealthy sort of regions, the kolkhoz are better equipped to this. But even then, again, within regions, um, so you know there are other ways in which. Um, collective farmers are finding themselves kind of on the short end of the stick of this sort of welfare state project. And there's one more thing I wanted to add about the pensions, which is that because um, because if you were a state farm worker, you could get a pension. After the pension law goes into effect in October 1956, a lot of collective farms vote to become state farms. And so right. you see a massive uh, explosion of new state farms in this time period, uh, which would then entitle their members to a pension. The problem is that this then in turn disadvantages a lot of the older members of the collective farms because they would not, under the law, have had the the necessary labor period, the stage, to get the pension. And so the farm, the collective farms then dissolved, and with it goes the mutual aid funds if they had it to begin with. And so these people are then doubly disadvantaged because they live in this area that's now a state farm, but they're not entitled to any of the benefits that would come to a state farm worker. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's rough to be a peasant in this period. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, is it ever not rough to be a peasant? <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
But she finds these really desperate letters, people writing and being like, please, please bring pensions to our, our co-host anyway. <laughs> yeah. Sam, I wanted to ask, you know, you're working, you're working on, on the collective farms in the 1930s and you live in Kirov. And I'm just kind of curious as what kind of reactions you get from people who might have, if any, people who might have experienced living on the collective farm, have family members who are part of collective farms. And, and what's your general sense of like the legacy of this and, and, and how you see it through your research? Well, it's the same thing with the Constitution. Anyone who remembers the 30s is now dead. Um, so Yeah, but I mean, even living, but, but still living, living in collective farms in the 70s. Um, honestly, a lot of the people I talked to did not live on collective farms in the 70s. And uh, Kirov had a large system of adhod anyway, so people would often leave. And that, I mean, that actually goes back to the 1890s, at least. Um, and that's something I wanted to mention earlier about the, the proportion of women left in the countryside is this was an issue, at least in the Kirov region, back through at least the 1890s, where men would disappear, at least for the winter, if not for a year or two to go work in local factories. Um, so yeah, I have, have you, have you visited, have you actually visited some of these places that you're studying? Like what's left? Um, a lot of them just don't exist anymore. Um, there's a whole list of like villages that no longer exist and most of them are on it. I have been to some of the Rayoni Sentry, which, um, they're very, very small. <laughs> um, it reminds me of West Virginia with fewer mountains. Yeah, because I'm trying to, I'm just trying to like to get a paint a picture of like what you know these places look like and what is left, uh, you know, in it in the wake of the the, the collective farm system. So I was wondering if you. Well, I mean, there are still some that function. There is, for example, the Spark Collective Farm near Katielnich, which is a cattle breeding farm, it actually established its own breed of cattle and sent a Stahanovica to um, the Supreme Soviet in the 1930s. Um, and it, it still functions, um, but most of them have been abandoned. Uh, I have been out in the abandoned ones, and it's a lot. I mean, honestly, the problem in Kirov is the same problem that throughout Russia, and it's a problem that began, again, probably in the 1890s, is that the young people don't want to live in the village. They want to move to cities for more amenities, better education, better opportunities. And the same is true even from cities like Kirov. People are leaving for bigger cities like Peter or Moscow or even Nizhny. Um, and so this massive population loss means that most of these places are abandoned or they're now sort of summer dachi for older people. Just to echo something that, that Sam just said, that I spent some time living in Vladimir and, and a very similar sort of thing. You, you would, um, you know, if you were from one of these outlying areas, your goal was, you know, to go to the regional capital, to Vladimir. If you were from Vladimir, your goal was to go to Moscow. There's this like hierarchy and you're always looking like one rung up, you know, that no one wants to. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, there, there's, there, you know, especially in, in these rural areas, you know, there's, and, and to be fair, this is a process that's that, that's happening in the U.S. too. You know, as somebody who's from a town in Indiana with twenty five hundred people, where agriculture is not a thing that that people of our generation really do. Um, you know, and everyone who could left, and you know, 
Right. But this is one of the this is one of the things in terms of needing industrial farming, right? Because the demographic writing is on the wall in the sense that you you have to have a system where a minority of people, a minority of laborers are able to produce food for the majority of the country unless you're just importing everything, right? So in in a way this is part of the general demographic shift of from rural society to urban society. Yeah, in in a lot of urban societies, uh, you know, in, in the US I can't remember the exact numbers, but but the number of farmers is less, I think, than two percent of the population. In a lot of parts of Western Europe, it's it's even lower. Um, you know, so you're just talking about a, such a small proportion of the population, which means they're all incredibly productive to be able to feed the rest of us. Um, and this is this is ultimately what the Soviet Union has to be aiming for, um, but it but it but it never gets even close. <laughs> Uh, and, and finally, you know, the consensus is, and I, I, I don't think there's much disagreement here with all of us, that the collective farm system was a, a disaster on many levels. Um, but, you know, instead of just assuming that as as one would, I'd like to kind of go around and have each of you say, you know, how do you understand it and how do you complicate the picture of just someone saying, well, it was just a, you know, complete disaster and whatever. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a disaster. I mean, I mean, they, they did do good things. I mean, they do actually introduce crop in, inventions. I mean, you know, I know uh, Aaron just talked about, you know, importing agricultural technologies in the 50s. But, you know, in the 1930s, we have seed breeders like a fellow named Rudnitsky here in Kirov developing different varieties of um, wheat and barley, one unfortunately named Golden Shower, <laughs> which makes me laugh every time I read it. Um, I'm like, oh man, I hope that doesn't mean the same thing in Russian. Um, I assume it doesn't, but um, so, you know, there, there are real pushes to develop technology. They are importing, for example, Romney Marsh sheep from England. They are importing Babant horses from Belgium. There are real pushes to make improvements. They have people who are inventing ways to grow watermelon in the Kirov region. We can't even ripen a tomato here and they're trying to grow watermelon and in many cases actually succeeding. And they do get a lot of pushback from usually people on the collective farm who don't want to expend the money or the effort. But you do have creative, inventive people working hard. And I think that needs to be remembered. And you have the entire generation of the Stahanovitsi, these people, particularly women, who saw this as a way out of this terrible patriarchal society where they worked hard and they did get recognized. They got you know, to go to conferences, they got to meet Stalin, you know, that girl from Kachelnich ends up being a de deputy to the Supreme Soviet uh, from, I think she was a milkmaid originally. So there really is a lot of social mobility for people who do work hard. They have more access to education, even if the education is maybe not so great and your building is falling down, it's an improvement from no education. And, and I think that, you know, these things are also important parts. There are a lot of positive steps. People get radio. You know, they're, they're doing things like going and making sure people's houses are clean. One village, um, I think it's in Falonki district, they go around. There's actually a brigade of women that make sure there's no cockroaches and garbage in your house and encourage people to grow ficus 
on their windowsill and put up curtains. So there really is a push towards modernity, towards cleanliness, to improving life, even if they don't always have the resources to do it. And I think that's what makes collectivization a disaster, is not that the idea is bad, but they lack the infrastructure, resources, and cadres to actually implement it correctly. I think I probably skew a little bit more conservative in my assessment, and I'm realizing it's probably, you know, the economic historian's perspective on this, but I think I think it generally was a disaster. Um, I don't think that it was an, in, an intentional disaster all of the time. I think I would echo Sam's statement there that you know, the resources are never put in place to do this the way that they want to do it. Um, but again, I, I would echo this point that it really locks the Soviet government into this inefficient model of small-scale farming, which is not what they want. Like the Soviet Union really was in some ways ahead of the curve on the idea of factory farming, which I, now we're on the other side of that maybe uh, where we're saying that factory farming isn't always so good for us. But, it, you know, back when they were thinking about what kind of agricultural system that they wanted, they, they wanted these large-scale farms. They wanted these, you know, very clean and safe and efficient farms, you know, with the animals were well taken care of. And they were they were never necessarily able to do this because the resources were not there, and because I think there was this lingering suspicion toward peasant mentality. They they never quite got a grip on the on the rural population. There there was still deep hostility between the state and the rural population that persisted well beyond the period of collectivization. I, I think I kind of want to echo some of both of of what you you've said. Um, you know, as I was I was thinking about this question a little bit, you know. There's sort of the what I see it and then how it's been portrayed sort of in the literature more broadly, you know, and, um, you know, one, something that I mentioned before, but I think is worth reiterating is that so often the collective farm is seen as unchanging. It is the collective farm. It works in one way. It's horrible. It fails. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think that, that under that is also a deep suspicion, if not an outright rejection of the idea of collective ownership. Um, or, or any kind of um, collective model whatsoever um, globally, which is simply not you know, borne out. You know, is, you know the experience, there are experiences of, of all kinds of different collective models. I was um, reading something recently about the Mondragon Collective in Spain, for example, which is this huge, like many thousands of people involved kind of enterprise. Um, and so I think it's important that, you know, I, I would probably come down sort of somewhere between the two of you, Sam and, and Christy, um, in that there are ways in which, yeah, there, there, there are efforts to to make these improvements, and yet they're locked into um, into this system that that isn't going to live up to what they they they, they you know the, the sort of visionaries, even going back to, to Lenin and and stuff in the twenties, um, are envisioning. You know, that so. We need to kind of see these failing such as they are in, in the in as historical in kind of two senses. One is that sort of material base that we've talked about, you know, all these disasters going back to, all the way back to World War One. Um, and so that it, it's only really in the second half of the Soviet era that they start actually investing in agriculture in any meaningful way. And by that point, there are all these like we'll sort of call them path dependencies and, and demographic forces and all these other things that, that make it um 
not impossible, but extremely unlikely or extremely difficult to actually overcome this. And, and they, they never quite have the political will or the capacity ultimately to, to do this. I think, you know, if, if the Soviet Union had actually been the like top down totalitarian system <laughs> that people claimed it would, they might have been better equipped to tackle this, <laughs> this collective farm problem, but they weren't right because we have all this local chaos that, that Samantha has been talking about and you know, that I've documented in the book and that kind of thing. Um, but also, again, you know, that it's historical in the sense of evolving over time and, and that we, we really don't understand it. You know, I've, I've looked closely at a couple of cases, um, leaving out literally hundreds of thousands of others. <laughs> you know, we, even, even our best sort of 10,000 foot view, let alone the normal 30,000 foot view, um, leaves us sort of at the mercy of, of, of not being really able to understand the effects of local conditions. And you know, agriculture is something that is inherently local on the, on, on, on the grounds of environment, but in the Soviet context, also of, you know, how good is your collective farm chairman? How, what kind of relationship do they have to the regional administration? What kind of party organization do you have? Um, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, and there's very little real deep scholarship on, on this. You know, there are only a few books out there that really delve deeply into a specific uh, collective farm or a specific group of collective farms. And, and, you know, it's not fun work and it's not sexy, I don't imagine, but it, it's, it's um, you know, until we have a better sense of some of this stuff, you know, we're, 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 we're going to miss a lot, I guess. I would, I would add on to that a little bit um, and just say, I would just, you know, completely agree with that, Aaron, um, and say, you know, we, we have a good sense of the global and top-down view of this, but I think that looking at these regional conditions is really important because you can show the ways in which Soviet citizens, collective farmers were enormously adaptive. They worked around a lot of these regulations. They figured out ways to make this work. They can, you know, they continue to feed people. They continue to bring goods to market. They were incredibly entrepreneurial in ways that I find enormously shocking a lot of the time. You know, I've looked at, for example, some photographs of people's private plots from the 1950s after they sort of changed around some of the rules. And people were, you know, they, they were able to cram an insane amount of crops onto very small grounds, right? They, they somehow managed to do this stuff. And so I think I would, I would echo this statement that, you know, we don't necessarily always have to think, like it's a veiled policy in many ways, but we don't necessarily always have to think of people's reactions to it as, um, as, you know, always being about, uh, sort of being repressed, being, you know, told what to do. People people find incredibly ingenious ways to work around the structures that are placed upon the collective farm. Um, and it demonstrates that the, with, within the collective farm, there is still an enormous amount of entrepreneurial spirit, to put it in those terms. Yeah, I, I think that's that's actually worth, as you were describing these collective farm plots, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the... Um, this is probably, if I had to guess, this is something that I picked up from reading James Scott, you know, for better or for worse. Um, but one of his points is that, you know, Europeans, especially going to other parts of the world and encountering other modes of agriculture, when they don't see like ordered, plowed, you know, perfect fields of, 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 of wheat and grains and whatever, don't see the sort of ingenious um, sort of multi uh, inter, you know, the way that crops can be all planted in the same space and sort of support each other so that at a very intensive companion planting? Sorry? 
companion planting. Yeah, that, that, I think that's the the one of the one of the terms for it. And I, I'm, like when Native Americans would plant corn, squash, and beans together. Right. Exactly. They, okay. And so Europeans okay. don't recognize this as actually more intensive agriculture than their own methods. Um, for example. And so part of the, I think part of the way that maybe we misinterpret this is just, again, by not seeing like Chrissy is saying, the, the sort of ingenuity of people who are working within the bounds of the system and, and making the most of it. And in some cases, you know, obviously there's a lot of rural poverty, but there are also a lot of people who do all right and live decent lives. And, and, and um, you know, people are enormously adaptive. That was Aaron Hale Dorrell, an independent scholar of modern Russia. He's the author of Corn Crusade, Khrushchev's Farming Revolution in the Post-Stalin Soviet Union, published by Oxford University Press. And Christy Ironside is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University, specializing in the political, economic, and social history of modern Russia. Her forthcoming book is tentatively titled A Full Value Ruble, the Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union, 1945-1964. And Samantha Lom is an assistant professor in the Department of Foreign Languages at Vyatka State University in Kirov, Russia. She's the author of Stalin's Constitution, Soviet Participatory Politics, and the Discussion of the 1936 Draft Constitution, published by Rutledge. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the Table of Ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye! <laughs>